welcome back to another episode of Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. This month, we are tackling maxillofacial trauma in the emergency department. Special thanks to Drs. Das and Salazar of Hofstra Northwell School of Medicine and Northwell Health, Staten Island University for putting this review together. As you probably noticed, we're releasing this episode at the same time as a print issue this month. That's our plan moving forward. We hope it will encourage you to listen to the episode and head back to the print issue to review and do the CME questions immediately afterwards. All right, so let's dive in. When I first saw the title, Maxillofacial Trauma in the Emergency Department, I thought to myself, well, this can't be that complicated. It's all in ATLS. Simply manage the airway, CT, consult, and dispo. Now, after a bit of reading, I realized just how wrong I was. To be perfectly fair, as an overview, my approach wasn't that far off, but there are a few subtleties here that we'll go over to help make average clinicians into experts by adding a systematic approach to the secondary survey of the maxillofacial area. This will help you not only manage the maxillofacial injury, but also recognize potential complications and manage a difficult airway before the situation arises. Let's set the scene with some epidemiology. The incidence of maxillofacial trauma has increased worldwide due to increasing urbanization and industrialization. A 2007 nationwide emergency department sample study showed that there were over 400,000 ED visits in the U.S. during that year alone for facial injuries. Not surprisingly, in this study, the average age was 38 years old and 68% were male. Assaults, falls, and MVCs were the three most common causes, accounting for 37%, 27%, and 12% of visits respectively. One other interesting fact, which is not all that surprising... In a two-year audit of maxillofacial trauma at a single UK center, 72% of visits were associated with either alcohol consumption and interpersonal violence. Although less common in kids, maxillofacial trauma in children is usually related to dental alveolar structures and soft tissue injuries. Similar to the adult stats I just cited, one study found a 2 to 1 male to female ratio. Reasons for pediatric maxillofacial trauma are also a bit different, with bicycle accidents and falls being the most common causes. Assaults are less common, but do increase in age as children approach adolescence. Of critical importance to the workup of maxillofacial trauma in both the adult and pediatric population is recognition of concomitant injuries. In one study, maxillofacial trauma was associated with loss of consciousness 63% of the time, extremity injury 22% of the time, eye injuries 18% of the time, TBI 13% of the time, and C-spine injuries 5% of the time. Concomitant abdominal injuries are rare, occurring just 1% of cases. All right, I think that's adequate background. Let's get into the specific fracture types. First up, we have nasal bone fractures. Nasal bone fractures account for 40% of bony injuries in facial trauma. Due to its anterior and prominent location, the nose is often injured during sports, falls, and less commonly during MVCs. The nose is made of bone and cartilage with the paired nasal bones, the nasal process of the frontal bone, and the maxilla supporting the cartilage. Bleeding anteriorly often comes from a redundant vascular network called Kesselbach's plexus. Bleeding associated with nasal fractures, however, results largely from other areas. The anterior ethmoid artery, a branch of the ophthalmic artery, can cause profuse anterior bleeding. Significant posterior nasal hemorrhage often occurs from a branch of the sphenopalatine artery. In addition, don't forget to assess for a septal hematoma that usually appears as a white or purple area on one or both sides of the septum. If untreated, septal hematomas can be responsible for permanent nasal deformities. The next structure we'll discuss is the mandible. The mandible is a mobile U-shaped bone. Fractures occur most commonly at the angle, 32% of the time, followed by the condyle, 23% of the time, and then the body and parasymphysis, 18 and 16% of the time, respectively. The anterior coronoid and posterior condyle articulate with the glenoid fossa to form the temporomandibular joint. Neurovascular supply comes from the inferior alveolar nerve and artery, with the mental nerve exiting the mental foramen below the second bicuspid and providing sensation to the skin and mucosa of the lower lip. 
Mandibular fractures are classified based on the location, just as you mentioned. Don't forget that the mechanism is also important. Lateral impact will likely result in fractures of the angle and body, whereas anterior impact will result in symphyseal, parasymphyseal, and condylar fractures. Next, let's move back up the face and talk about orbital fractures. In adults, orbital fractures most commonly occur due to MVCs or interpersonal violence, whereas in pediatric patients, they most frequently occur due to falls or sports-related injuries. In one study, concomitant ocular injuries occurred in 40% of facial trauma. The orbit is composed of seven bones, the frontal, zygoma, maxilla, lacrimal, ethmoid, sphenoid, and palatine bones. The optic nerve runs through the optic foramen in the sphenoid bone, and the inferior orbital nerve courses through the orbital floor in the maxilla. It's important to note that the weakest portions of the orbit are the thin orbital floor bones comprised of the maxilla and the lamina papricia. Because of this, they fracture quite easily, resulting in a, quote, blowout fracture. Although it sounds horrific, this feature is actually protective because it prevents globe rupture. As the floor is blown out, the intraorbital pressure decreases. Next, let's talk about zygomatic fractures. The zygoma is largely responsible for maintaining the normal facial width and prominence of the cheeks. Due to its thickness, isolated zygoma fractures are uncommon. The zygoma serves as an attachment for many facial muscles, and zygomatic arch fractures can result in impingement of the temporalis muscle causing trismus. Great point. The most common fracture of the zygoma is the quote tripod or zygomatico-maxillary complex fracture that involves separation of all three major attachments of the zygoma from the rest of the face. This typically results only from a direct blow to the body of the zygoma and can even result in extraocular muscle entrapment. Let's move on to the Lefort fractures next. Maxillary fractures or Lefort fractures account for 6-25% to of all facial fractures. These injuries are often the result of high-energy blunt force trauma, such as from a motor vehicle crash, physical altercation, or from a fall. Because of the maxilla's association with the oral cavity, nasal cavity, and the orbits, injuries may be life-threatening as well as cosmetically disfiguring. The Lefort classification system was derived by René Lefort in 1901 to describe the predictable pattern of maxillary trauma. Lefort 1 fractures, or horizontal fractures, extend from the nasal septum to the lateral piriform rims, traveling horizontally above the teeth apices across the zygomatico-maxillary junction. They can result from a downward force directed towards the maxillary alveolar rim. You can think of this as a mobile maxillary dental arch. Lefort 2 fractures, or pyramidal fractures, can result from a direct blow to the lower or mid-maxilla. The fracture forms a pyramidal shape and extends from the nasal bridge through the frontal processes of the maxilla, inferior laterally through the lacrimal bones and inferior orbital floor, and then travels under the zygoma. If you're having trouble imagining the pyramid shape I just described, head over to page 5 of the print edition for a great diagram. Last are the Lefort 3 fractures, or transverse fractures, which start at the nasal frontal frontal maxillary sutures and extend posteriorly along the medial wall of the orbit through the nasal lacrimal groove into the ethmoid bones. These can result from impact to the nasal bridge or upper maxilla. Make sure to evaluate for CSF leakage with Lefort 3 fractures. The last group of fractures we should discuss here are the frontal bone fractures. Due to its thickness, frontal bone fractures only occur with high-impact traumas, such as those with 800 to 1,600 foot-pounds of pressure. Therefore, frontal sinus fractures rarely occur in isolation and are almost always associated with intracranial injuries. Long-term sequelae of frontal sinus fractures include chronic sinusitis, mucosal, mucopiocele, meningitis, brain abscesses, frontal osteomyelitis, and CSF leak. Wow, that's quite the list. Let's move on to pre-hospital care. We don't have a lot to mention here. Most importantly, all patients with significant maxillofacial trauma should be placed in cervical spine precautions. Epistaxis should be controlled with direct pressure, and suction should be kept nearby as swallowed blood can often result in emesis. 
Once in the ED, the initial evaluation begins with the standard ABCD approach of ATLS. With respect to the A for airway, the main cause of death in severe facial injuries is airway obstruction due to bleeding, vomiting, soft tissue swelling, or edema. Additionally, a thorough evaluation of the oropharynx is a must, and any foreign bodies need to be removed. Remember that in some patients, traditional endotracheal intubation may not be possible and cricothyroidotomy might be necessary. With respect to breathing or ventilation, just as we mentioned at the start of this episode, patients with maxillofacial trauma often have intracranial injuries or are intoxicated, both of which can affect their ventilatory status. Monitor ventilation with due caution. While life-threatening hemorrhage from maxillofacial injuries is uncommon, blood loss from the scalp or neck can often be profuse and require quick closure with stapling or suturing. If the fracture is impeding hemorrhage control, immediate and temporary reduction of the fracture may be necessary. In extreme cases, ligation of the external carotid artery, or if available, angiography and selective embolization may be useful. Yeah, and while angiography sounds great and really high-tech, don't underplay the risk of embolic material crossing into the brain, which can cause devastating irreversible neurologic complications. Great point. And the last part of the ABCD assessment from ATLS is the D for deficit. Right. As I just said, patients with significant facial injuries are often intoxicated, obtunded, or unconscious, and have distracting injuries, making cervical spine clearance difficult. In one review, 20% of patients with maxillofacial injuries also had cerebral and cervical spine injuries. Remember to maintain C-spine and spinal immobilization in those who you cannot fully assess. Perfect. Let's move on to the physical exam, which Drs. Das and Salazar have conveniently broken down into 10 steps. All right, I'll get us started here with step one. Step one, observe for facial asymmetry. This is easy and should be even easier if you're at the head of the bed readying yourself for a difficult airway. For step two, palpate the nares and nasal bridge. Inspect the nasal septum for hematomas and look for clear rhinorrhea, which may indicate a CSF leak. A CSF leak can be secondary to a cribriform plate disruption, a basilar skull fracture, or a temporal bone fracture. Step three, Check for facial stability by grasping the teeth and the hard palate and gently push horizontally and vertically to assess for mid-face stability. The emphasis here should be on the gentle push in order to not do any more damage. This helps to assess for a Lafort fracture. Do note, however, that this absolutely should not be attempted in any intoxicated or altered patient who may attempt to bite down on your fingers. Provider safety always comes first. For step four, palpate the mandible along its symphysis, body, angle, and coronoid process, to check for tenderness, swelling, and step-off. This exam needs to be performed both intraorally and extraorally. So let me reiterate the warning you just mentioned. Make sure the patient has the appropriate mental status for such an exam. Afterwards, test the teeth for stability, looking for loose teeth and bleeding at the gum line to suggest fracture through the alveolar bone. Although not very specific, the tongue blade test is a great screening test for mandibular fractures with a 95% sensitivity. Basically, to do this, you place a tongue depressor at each of the corners of the mouth and ask the patient to bite down. Next, you twist the blade. An intact jaw will have no difficulty breaking the tongue depressor against such force. Next, we have step 5. Palpate the zygoma along its arch. You can also assess for infraorbital or upper lip paresthesias. 70-90% to of patients with zygoma fractures note such deficits. You should also look for periorbital ecchymosis, lateral subconjunctival hemorrhages, and step-offs of the orbital rim, which are common. Step six is to palpate the bony structures of the supraorbital ridge and the frontal bone for step-off fractures. Step seven is to evaluate the nerves which run through the maxillofacial region, specifically the supraorbital, infraorbital, inferior alveolar, and mental nerve distributions. 
Step eight is to perform a full visual exam. And let me emphasize the word full here and not just a cursory, oh, how's your vision drive-by visual exam that people often try to get away with. If it's possible, you should examine the extraocular movements, check visual acuity, examine the cornea with fluorescein, look at the anterior and posterior chambers, examine the retina for signs of detachment, and test for diplopia. Admittedly, much of this may be limited by the patient's other injuries, but when possible, a thorough visual exam is a must. Interestingly, the most common physical exam sign of orbital fractures include periorbital ecchymosis, diplopia, hyposthesia in the V2 distribution, and intraorbital emphysema. Step 9 is a detailed cranial nerve examination. This can be difficult to assess in an unconscious or obtunded patient. Pay specific attention to incomplete eye closure, blowing in and out of the cheek with breathing, and hearing impairment, which can be consistent with a cranial nerve injury. The last and final step in the process is step 10. Fully undress the patient to examine the entire body for other potential sources of injury. Severe maxillofacial trauma is distracting, and you wouldn't want to miss any other injuries. All right, so that takes care of basic anatomy, fracture classification, pre-hospital care, and initial ED exam. It's time for diagnostic testing, treatment, and lastly, disposition. In terms of specific laboratory testing for maxillofacial trauma, testing to determine if a clear fluid leak is indeed CSF should be done. The most sensitive and specific tests are tests for beta trace protein and beta-2 transferrin, with the beta-2 transferrin test being the gold standard. These tests take a while, so you'll often have acquired other data that may make the result less useful. Other more simple tests like the glucose oxidase test and testing presumed CSF for the double ring sign or halo sign are neither sensitive nor specific. Unlike lab testing, there's a lot to discuss with respect to imaging. As I mentioned at the beginning, CT scanning is the answer, which has all but obviated the need for plain radiographs. Ideally, CT imaging with a narrow 0.625 millimeter on a 64 slice scanner should be obtained. That being said, I think it's still important to understand the plane radiographs and the different views. There are five common plane film views to evaluate maxillofacial trauma. The Waters, Caldwell, Lateral, Basal, and Town views. Of these, the most helpful view is the Waters occipitomental view because it shows all the major facial structures. As with all radiographs, tracing smooth, uninterrupted, symmetric lines will ensure that the pertinent areas are evaluated completely. Linear lucencies, separation sign, overlap sign, abnormal linear density, and the quote disappearing fragment sign are all direct radiographic signs of facial fractures. Indirect signs include subcutaneous air, intracranial air, fluid in the sinuses, and soft tissue swelling. Great, and just as we went over the various fracture types, let's review imaging specific to each injury. For suspected isolated nasal bone injuries, imaging is not typically necessary as the diagnosis is made clinically. If imaging is deemed necessary, a plain radiograph is sufficient to start. The nasal tip is typically seen best on a lateral view, whereas a nasal arch fracture would be seen best in the water's view. If a nasal arch fracture is detected, make sure to look for other fractures, as this is a rare isolated injury. In this case, definitely consider CT for accurate evaluation of nasoorbital ethmoid fractures. For imaging the mandible, a CT is a must. For historic purposes, the most useful plain film study is the panoramic radiograph, or Panorex, which is a complete view of the mandible in a single shot. Similarly, to image the orbits, although the Waters and Caldwell plain radiographic views are decent, a CT scan is the ideal modality. CT imaging will not only evaluate for orbital fractures, but it can also help look for evidence of entrapment or retrobulbar hemorrhages, two things you obviously don't want to miss. And one quick aside here while we're discussing orbital fractures. There are two important subtypes to be aware of, the blowout and blow-in fractures. The term blowout fracture refers to fractures to any of the walls of the orbit. Blow-in fractures, on the other hand, refer to orbital roof fractures. 
These usually result from direct blows to the supraorbital rim or from a direct blow to the frontal bone. If a fracture extends into the apex of the orbit, be on the lookout for damage to cranial nerves 2 through 6. For zygoma fractures, as you may have guessed, CT scanning offers the best imaging as well. If you were to get plain films, the bucket handle view and waters view are the preferred views. The waters view would allow you to trace the elephants of Rogers and the lines of Dolan. If you, like me, hadn't heard of these before, check out the awesome figure on page 14. Lastly, we have maxillary and frontal sinus imaging. While the waters and lateral views would offer the best plane radiographic views, just as you expected, the CT is essential. Similarly, for any suspected frontal sinus fracture, as the patient already requires imaging to rule out intracranial complications, the same study should be used to evaluate the frontal bone. Perfect. So to reiterate, for isolated nasal bone fractures, you can often make the diagnosis clinically. For all other maxillofacial injuries, although plain film can be obtained, CT imaging is simply preferred. Let's move on to management. For nasal bone trauma, the first step in management is a thorough examination, which requires adequate lighting, suction, vasoconstrictive nasal sprays, and perhaps local anesthesia. If a septal hematoma is found, it should be immediately incised, aspirated, and packed. Check out page 15 of the print edition for a link to a great video. Yeah, it's definitely worth a watch, since this isn't something ED physicians do every day. Moving on to uncomplicated nasal fractures, Treatment is conservative with pain medication, rest, ice, and head elevation, with follow-up for definitive management once the swelling has resolved. Another key component of managing nasal injuries is the management of epistaxis. Once the location of the bleed is identified, the initial step should be an attempt at silver nitrate cauterization. In one review, this had a success rate of 80%. That's pretty good. If this fails, the next step is nasal packing. Packing can be anterior, posterior, or both, and can be done with a variety of agents, such as Vaseline gauze packing, compressed sponges, otherwise known as Mirasol sponges, or an anterior epistaxis balloon like the Rapid Rhino. The exact devices may differ from shop to shop, but serve the same purpose. And if packing is necessary, all packing should be removed within three or four days at the ENT doctor's office. Prophylactic antibiotics are also recommended to reduce the incidence of toxic shock syndrome, despite limited data supporting this. And in the most extreme cases, when bleeding continues despite anterior packing, posterior packing is likely necessary. This can be accomplished with rolled gauze, double balloon catheters, or even a 10 to 14 French Foley catheter with a 30 cc balloon. Posterior packing may be life-saving, but it's fraught with complications. In one retrospective study of patients with posterior epistaxis, 21% experienced acute sinusitis, 12% required blood product transfusion, and 4% required intubation. This is even more concerning because of the increased risk of hypoxia, hypoventilation, and dysrhythmias associated with posterior packs. All of these patients require admission and prophylactic antibiotics. Absolutely. There's not too much to discuss with respect to mandibular fractures. All fractures require consultation with a facial trauma specialist, like an oral surgeon, plastic surgeon, or ENT. There's no clear answer as to whether or not patients with mandibular fractures require antibiotics, but the best evidence from a systematic review by Mundinger et al. suggests that preoperative antibiotics should be given. The management of orbital fractures is fairly straightforward. Of course, an ophthalmology consult is necessary, but most can actually be discharged with simple instructions. You should also advise patients to apply ice for the first 48 hours, elevate the head of their bed, use nasal decongestants, and avoid nose-blowing and valsalva maneuvers. A broad-spectrum antibiotic like amoxicillin clavulinate should be prescribed along with an NSAID for pain. In much rarer cases of orbital compartment syndrome secondary to an acute rise in orbital pressure, the ED physician must be prepared to perform a lateral canthotomy to avoid permanent damage to the ocular nerve, which can result in irreversible blindness. 
Suspect orbital compartment syndrome clinically with acute onset of decreased vision, painful periorbital edema, and proptosis. Yeah, this isn't something we see often, but it cannot be missed as the complications are devastating. Quickly, before we talk about special populations, the last fracture type to discuss are zygoma fractures. Management is simple. Avoid nose blowing and apply pressure to that side of the face until definitive operative management. All right, so now we're on to special populations. For maxillofacial trauma, there are only two, the very old and the very young. Let's start with the kids. As compared to adults, facial trauma is less common. Additionally, the child's face has a few protective features. The relative flexibility of the pediatric facial bones, a larger skull-to-face ratio, lack of pneumatization of the sinuses, and the presence of protective fat pads. Just as in adults, CT imaging is a modality of choice. Nasal fractures are the most common fracture, followed by mandibular fractures. In contrast to the protective features of the child's anatomy, geriatric anatomy makes fractures more likely. The bones naturally weaken in old age. Loss of teeth leads to atrophy, which decreases mandibular strength further. And as the geriatric population pursues an ever more active lifestyle, the risk for fracture rises. In the elderly, falls and MVCs account for the top two causes of maxillofacial trauma, with the nasal bone and zygoma being the most commonly fractured bones, followed by the mandible. Looks like just about everyone's breaking their nose. Anyway, Dr. Das and Salazar only bring up one true controversy and two cutting-edge advances to close out this article. The first controversy is, of course, antibiotics. Basically, current evidence has shown that giving prophylactic antibiotics beyond 24 hours perioperatively or postoperatively has no significant additional benefit to the patient. In one multidisciplinary survey, surgical subspecialists prescribed antibiotics 85% of the time without consensus on the exact duration of therapy. The next topic, transcatheter arterial embolization, or TAE, is both a controversy and a cutting-edge technique. TAE is an alternative to surgical exploration and arterial ligation, and should be considered in all hemodynamically unstable trauma patients, as it's been reportedly very successful in controlling facial hemorrhage. That being said, it's wrought with potential complications, including CVA, nerve damage, soft tissue necrosis, and trismus. I imagine we'll be seeing more and more TAE in the future. The last cutting-edge topic is ultrasound. Not surprisingly, ultrasound has been studied in maxillofacial injuries. In terms of detecting nasal bone fractures, ultrasound has a sensitivity of 90 to 100% and a specificity of 98 to 100%. Not bad. Ultrasound has also been studied in the setting of orbital trauma, where it also performs quite well for both orbital floor and orbital rim fractures. So now we've assessed, imaged, and managed the maxillofacial trauma to the best of our abilities. What's next? Disposition, of course. For most facial trauma, surgical repair is often delayed as it's non-emergent. Although simple fractures can be discharged without consultation, most facial trauma will require a surgical subspecialist at the very least to assure close follow-up. Don't forget to consider early involvement of a multidisciplinary trauma team in patients with severe facial trauma or multi-system trauma. Great point, but before you let the patient go home, make sure you adequately warn them about impending swelling and bruising. Swelling and bruising can be quite substantial and may be alarming, so patients should be counseled to expect it. They should also be instructed to apply ice and elevate their head, especially while sleeping, to help minimize swelling. Like always, appropriate discharge instructions, setting realistic expectations, and a clear follow-up plan are a must. Alright, so let's summarize the key points we discussed today. Maxillofacial trauma is frequently encountered in the ED. You can expect the numbers to continue to rise as urbanization and industrialization continue and as the elderly continue to live longer. When managing maxillofacial injuries, the ED physician should apply a simple management algorithm as we outlined, paying particular attention to airway management and ensuring adequate ventilation.
Don't forget that maxillofacial trauma is extremely distracting, so patients must be completely disrobed to look for concomitant injuries. Speaking of concomitant injuries, they're common, with closed head injuries being the most common. CT scanning is the imaging modality of choice. Most maxillofacial fractures will require a facial surgeon, but few will require inpatient management, and most can be safely discharged home with close outpatient follow-up. The role of antibiotics is heavily debated without a clear answer, although most advocate for their use. Always, always, always perform a thorough eye exam and consult ophthalmology liberally, as eye injuries are common and a miss can have devastating consequences. All right, so that wraps up Amplified episode number three, Maxillofacial Trauma in the Emergency Department. Thanks to Drs. Doss and Salazar for this excellent review. There are dozens of great images in the print edition, which are really helpful in visualizing the fracture patterns, so make sure to check them out. And one more quick plug before we cue up the closing music. Don't forget to join EB Medicine for their annual conference, Clinical Decision-Making in Emergency Medicine in Ponte Vedra Beach. Visit their website at clinicaldecisionmaking.com for more details and registration information. Send us any feedback or comments to Amplify, that's E-M-P-L-I-F-Y, at ebmedicine.net. We'll be back with the next episode in just one month. Talk to you guys then. Music